Welcome back to Plane Crash Diaries with me, your host and pilot, Des Latham. This is episode 32. A listener recently asked me to take a closer look at the crash of a Learjet in 1999 that was carrying golfer Payne Stewart, so here we are. Of all the crashes I've looked at, this has to be one of the more frustrating and needs quite a bit of sleuthing. The main reason is the NTSB has not published a final report and probably never will. The basic facts are not in dispute. It was a case of a plane decompression at high altitude, but how it happened is another matter. So let's try and dig deep and discover what led to the death of one of the best-known sportsmen in the United States. The basic story goes like this. On October 25, 1999, a Learjet 35 registration November 47 Bravo Alpha, operated by Sunjet Aviation, based at Sanford in Florida, departed Orlando for Dallas at around 0920 Eastern Daylight Time. Radio contact with the flight was lost north of Gainesville after air traffic control cleared the plane to flight level 390. The Learjet was then intercepted by several U.S. Air Force and Air National Guard aircraft as it headed in a northwesterly direction. The military pilots flew close enough to see that the windshield of the Learjet was frosted or covered with condensation. Later, the airplane engines spooled down, controlled flight was not possible, and the plane stalled and spiraled to the ground, impacting an open field between the towns of Mila and Aberdeen in South Dakota just before 1200 hours 15 Central Daylight Time on October 25, 1999. All occupants on board, including the captain, the first officer, and four passengers were killed, including Payne Stewart. The flight crew of November 47 Bravo Alpha had been scheduled to undertake a two-day trip consisting of five flights in total. On the first day, they were to head from Orlando Sanford International Airport, or SFB, to Orlando International Airport, MCO, which was a short hop of 15 nautical miles. They were to pick up passengers and head off to Dallas Love Field Airport in Dallas, Texas. Then the final leg of this two-day extravaganza would be the next day from Dallas to William B. Hobby Airport in Houston, Texas. For the first flight, they filed a Visual Flight Rules Plan, VFR, and were set to depart at 0800 from Orlando Sanford to Orlando International. The two pilots were Captain Michael Kling and First Officer Stephanie Belgerick. The four passengers on board were PGA golfer Payne Stewart, his agent and former Alabama football quarterback Robert Fraley, President of the Leader Enterprises Sports Agency Van Arden, and a golf architect Bruce Borland who worked for the Jack Nicklaus Golf Course Design Company. Captain Kling arrived at Sanford Airport at 0630 to prep the first officer a few minutes later. Staff present said they looked fine, everything was normal. Kling was 42 years old and rated on single-engine land planes and held type ratings for Boeing 707, 720 and the Learjet. He had a Class 1 medical, no limitations. Kling had also served as a co-pilot and standardization evaluation pilot on the U.S. Air Force KC-135A from 1981 to 1984, and he was an emergency procedures evaluator, and from 84 to 88, he was an aircraft commander on a U.S. Air Force E-3A. From 88 to 93, he was flight instructor pilot on Maine Air National Guard KC-135E. During his U.S. Air Force and National Guard career, the captain accumulated 3,953 hours flying the KC-135 and E-3A airplanes and achieved the rank of major. Then in 93, he transferred to a non-flying position where he spent the next six years. In September 99, he was hired by Sunjet in Florida. I suppose he'd had enough of the main winters by then. At the time of the accident, he'd accumulated a total of 4,280 hours 
with 38 hours as Learjet captain in command and 22 as second in command. Kling was a non-smoker, he didn't drink alcohol, nor did he take any medication. The captain asked the line service technician that morning to pull the plane out of the hangar and to pump it with 5,300 pounds fuel weight. He asked for ground power to be connected and for the technician to put a snack basket and cooler box in the cabin. There were VRBs coming. The Learjet was a 23-year-old aircraft and had logged more than 10,000 hours of flight time. It had a few snags, which we're going to look at shortly. First officer Stephanie Belgarig climbed aboard and checked the nav. Belgarig was 27 at the time of the accident and held a commercial pilot certificate issued April 15, 1999, with the ratings and limitations of airplane multi-engine land, airplane single-engine land, instrument airplane, and type ratings for Learjet and Cessna Citation 500s. She was also certified as a flight instructor and had just passed her medical in September 1999 with the limitation that she had to wear glasses. She was in good health, a non-smoker who didn't drink coffee or take any medication. Belle Garrig was described as an excellent pilot who was extremely thorough. She'd been working at Sunjet Aviation since February of 1999 and had a total of 1,751 hours flying, 1,300 of which were in pilot in command and had flown 250 hours as the first officer at Sunjet. Bell Garrig then went inside the terminal building while the captain performed the pre-flight inspection. At around 0725 Eastern Daylight Time, an instrument flight rules flight plan was filed with the St. Petersburg Automated Flight Service Station for the second flight of the day. That was the longer one between Orlando International and Dallas. This plan showed that November 47 Bravo Alpha was scheduled to depart Orlando at 0900 Eastern and was routing via Cross City, Florida, then directly to Dallas. They asked for 39,000 feet, and the plan also stated there would be five people on board, two pilots and three packs, and there were four hours, 45 minutes flight endurance. Then the Learjet departed for the short hop from Orlando Sanford at 0745 and arrived at Orlando International at 0810 Eastern. No fuel was pumped in, and the passengers included world number one golfer Payne Stewart, who arrived half an hour later and boarded the Learjet. He was coming off his 99 US Open win and was a wildly popular and increasingly marketable sports figure. Payne Stewart was charismatic and wore distinctive knickerbockers that seemed to add to his broad appeal. He was an extrovert entertainer on the course. Apart from being a great golfer, he supposedly had the biggest wardrobe of all professional golfers. His ivy caps and patterned knickerbockers were a throwback to the once commonplace golf uniform of the 20s. Stuart was also admired for having one of the most gracefully fluid and stylish golf swings of the modern era. He was the VIP of VIPs for Sunjet. It was then that an additional passenger, who was not on the original charter list, asked to join the Sunjet aviation flight. That was Bruce Borland, the Jack Nicklaus course designer, who climbed aboard at the last minute. He was the sixth person. The baggage was loaded, including a heavy golf bag, and according to ATC recordings, the flight departed from Orlando International at 0919 bound for Dallas. Uh, good morning, clearance here, 47 Bravo Alpha with Victor, ready to copy, we're going to Dallas. 47 Bravo Alpha, clearance follows, you're clear to the uh, Dallas Love Field. We have the Jeff 6 departure, Vector Cross City then has filed, maintain 5,000. Departure frequency will be uh, 120.15, squawk 3245. Okay, 47 Bravo Alpha, Dallas, Jeff 6 departure, 
Cloud City as filed, 5,120.15 and 3245. 4-7 Bravo Alpha, readback is correct and you have a good flight. Thank you. Clear 47 Bravo Alpha, flighting 010. Runway 36 left, clear for takeoff. 010, clear for takeoff, Bravo Alpha. Clear 47 Bravo Alpha, flight heading 010, and contact departure. I'll see you later. 010, see you later, Bravo Alpha. At 0,921.46 seconds, the first officer contacted Jacksonville Air Route Traffic Control Center and reported climbing through 9,500 feet to 14,000. Good morning, Jacksonville, 47 Bravo Alpha, 9,500 to 14,000. Lear Jet 47 Bravo Alpha, Jacksonville Center, right? Pilot maintains follow 260. 260, Bravo Alpha. Lear 47 Bravo Alpha, uh, let's see. You fly direct Dallas, and unless you can make 51,000 feet, you're going to have to go around the warning areas. Uh, we shall direct Cross City, then over to Dallas for 47 Bravo Alpha. You are correct. Clear direct cross city, direct Dallas, uh, number 47 Bravo Alpha. Thanks. On board November 47 Bravo Alpha, Stephanie Belgaric acknowledged 260 Bravo Alpha. The first officer spoke to ATC for the remainder of this doomed flight. At 0923 and 16 seconds, the controller cleared 47BA direct to cross city and then to Dallas. Just over three minutes later, the pilots were told to change radio frequency and contact another Jacksonville ARTCC controller. Good morning, Jacks. 47 Bravo Alpha, 230 for 260. Investigators later conducted flight tests to check if the first officer was wearing her oxygen mask. Members of the National Transportation Safety Board cockpit voice recorder group listened to the flight test transmissions made with the mask on and off and then compared the sounds to the accident airplane's transmission. It transpired neither the captain nor the first officer were wearing oxygen masks. When the cockpit voice recorder was recovered, it only had the last 30 minutes of the flight. There was no talking by then. Only the sound of the altitude warning alarm was going off. ATC radar checked later, and they found the jet had turned slightly to the right at 09304045 seconds, three minutes after the last transmission, while climbing through an altitude of 30,200 feet. Because the airplane's ground track was maintained for nearly the rest of the flight, it's likely that someone inside the plane physically turned the autopilot heading select knob to create this turn, but no one could tell if that was intentional or something more sinister. At 09033, 38 seconds, the controller instructed November 47BA to change radio frequencies and contact Jacksonville Control. There was no response from the Learjet. November 47 Bravo Alpha contact Jack Center on 135.65. ATC called the flight five more times. November 47 Bravo Alpha Jack. There was no transponder change. November 47 Bravo Alpha Jack. would indicate a comms breakdown. November 47 Bravo Alpha Jack. Was 7500 indicated. November 47 Bravo Alpha Jack. Everything on board had come to a sudden and by now frozen halt, except for the autopilot and altitude warning alarm. Jacksonville then radioed a passing Cubana plane to try and make contact. November 47 Bravo Alpha from Cubana. Uh, Jackson is calling you. How do you read? Did he answer you any, Cabana? I'm now contacting Cabana 
Okay, thank you. I think we got a dead pilot up here. He's through his altitude and off course now, so we don't know what's going on. Go ahead. And off there. Thank you. Uh, that 47 BA, in case you're wondering, I think he's dead. Uh, somebody said he was Nordo and he just climbed on his own, but that's all right. Well, nope, I think nope. he's dead. He ain't even turning on course. It so happened that U.S. Air Force F-16 test pilots from the 40th Flight Test Squadron based at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida were in the sky nearby. At 0952, ATC vectored them to within 8 nautical miles of November 47BA. And at 0954, they approached the Learjet and stood off at around 2,000 feet above it at 46,400. The Learjet was around 44,000 feet now, unusually high. And in fact, when investigators checked the flight data recorder later, they discovered the plane had actually reached an altitude of 48,900 feet. The F-16 pilot tried to call November 47BA, but there was no response. He flew closer. Six minutes later, 1000 hours, the F-16 pilot flew in to inspect the aircraft. There was no damage, nor ice on the exterior. Both engines were running. The rotating beacon was on. The pilot then tried to get a better look through the passenger windows. Everything was dark, or at least opaque. He immediately realized there was ice inside the cabin. Flying slightly ahead, he looked through the right cockpit windshield, but it was opaque too. The left windshield was also opaque, but in the center there seemed to be a small rectangular section that was clear. Squinting, he tried to look through this little gap from his F-16. Some kind of movement, perhaps, inside. There was none. It had taken about 12 minutes to conduct the search, and the F-16 then broke off and headed to Scott Air Force Base in Illinois. It was now 12 minutes past 10. Shortly afterwards, two Oklahoma National Guard F-16s identified as Tulsa 13 Flight were vectored to intercept the accident airplane by Minneapolis Air Traffic Control. It looks nice over. We take a visual. Minneapolis, Tulsa 13. Tulsa 13, go ahead. Sir, it looks like the left side cockpit is iced over. The glass is iced over. Tulsa 13, roger. I think I got enough energy. I can make a quick, uh, let me look at the right side real quick. Okay. I'll stay north, you stay south. Look at the, uh, the pilot's window looks iced over, coming off to the south. Yeah, it's iced over, coming up north, and I see no displacement of any control surfaces. With that, uh, Minneapolis, Tulsa 1-3. Tulsa 1-3, go ahead. Got two visuals on it. Looking like the uh, cockpit window is iced over, and the there's no displacement on the control surfaces as far as the ailerons are trimmed. Around 1139 CDT, Tulsa 13 flight had to break off and head for refueling at a nearby air tanker flying around. But no one was giving up. At 1150 CDT, two North Dakota Air National Guard F-16s identified as NODAC 32 flight were vectored to intercept November 47BA. By now, the Tulsa 13 twin F-16s were also back, so there were four fighter jets around this doomed Learjet. At 1200 hours 10, 41 seconds, the cockpit voice recorder on board the Learjet picked up the sounds of a stick shaker and the autopilot disconnecting. The plane had run out of fuel. The cabin altitude oral warning was sounding continuously. Six start. Okay, can I go ahead. Minneapolis, the uh, target is descending. What's he doing? And he's doing uh, multiple aileron rolls. Looks like he's out of control. understand. Thank you. One three, stand by for that clearance, please. What's he doing? Copy that. He's in a right two, here. Two, three, clear down course. Two, come back uh, to the uh, east. Go Minneapolis. East. Minneapolis, the target is in a severe descent. 
Looks like he's out of control. Okay, I'm visual. You got the lead on the right. Minneapolis request uh, emergency de descent to follow the target. Watch your heading again. Well, that aircraft is uh, uh, still as we do. It impacted the ground and he's on a descending spiral. It's now at 14,000 feet. 14,000 feet, thank you. Passing 10,000. Yeah. What was the guy doing? I lost him. Uh, he spiraled. He's going to impact the ground shortly. I lost him, though. Okay. It was a little after midday Central Time on Monday, October 25th, 99, and local resident John Hoffman was leading a pheasant hunting expedition around a mile from his home in the small lakeside town of Mina, South Dakota. That morning, he'd headed out with a larger group than normal, 20 folks, all from Texas. One suddenly stopped and called out. He said he'd just seen a plane fall from the sky straight down nearby. No one else saw this. There was no explosion, no boom. Nothing, said Hoffman later. A few minutes later, two F-16 jets screamed overhead, then climbed and left. Nodak, I'm pretty sure the impact area was southwest of that U-shaped lake up there, between the lakes. Minneapolis Center, 120.6 or 371.2. Go ahead. Can you pass it on to FAA? Nodak, tell us is there a 20 and below. We're going to get out of your hair here. On the ground, the hunters knew that something really serious had happened. One phoned his wife told him that TV stations had been following the jet's progress and that Payne Stewart was on board. Hoffman was told by neighbours that the plane was on his land and he raced over to the field and there he found what he called a huge line of looky-loos. Police let him approach eventually. He described the scene. The landscape was covered in small fires and metal chunks were lying everywhere. It looked like the plane had fractured like an ice cube, he told reporters later. Most of the plane's debris was embedded in mud and soil with an 8-foot deep, 30-foot wide crater. The main airframe wreckage was located in or next to that impact crater, while the majority of the wreckage was found within approximately a 75 feet radius. Additional bits were recovered up to 150 feet away, and almost all of this had been thrown out east of the crater. A debris field of smaller wreckage, including instrument panel components, the flight manual, seat cushions, life vests and personal effects, extended outwards from the impact crater in a north-northeasterly direction towards a small marsh around 80 feet away. Investigators planned to reassemble much of the wreckage as possible at a hangar at Aberdeen's airport, 15 miles away. Tissue samples were taken from the first officer and they tested negative for a wide range of drugs, including major drugs of abuse. Forensic toxicology fatal accident report indicated that 41 milligrams of ethanol and one milligram of acetaldehyde were detected in muscle, but concluded this was likely from post-mortem ethanol formation, not from ingestion. The five drugs, by the way, tested in post-accident analysis in 99 were marijuana, cocaine, opiates, fencyclidine, and amphetamines. They could not conduct toxicology tests on the captain because there was no tissue remaining. The force of the crash was so great. The investigators turned to the oxygen system, and the first thing they noted was that there were two airworthiness directives issued prior to the accident involving the inspection and replacement of outflow valves on some Learjet Model 35s. However, because the serial number of the accident plane's outflow valve didn't match these airworthiness directives, they were not applicable to November 47BA. The oxygen bottle was dented but not breached, and the regulator shutoff valve was in the open position. The cockpit oxygen pressure valve viewing glass was broken, but the needle remained attached and read just below zero. Both flight crew oxygen masks quick 
disconnect valves were recovered, all were operational, although investigators couldn't determine where the flight crew masks were at the time of impact because of the damage. When they examined the disassembled regulator, it was in the emergency position, while all five passenger oxygen actuator lanyard valves were also recovered. It wasn't clear if any of these had been in use at the time of the accident. The motor-operated windshield anti-ice shut-off valve was in the closed position. If there'd been a sudden decompression, the crew would have followed the procedure they'd been trained to follow, and the valve would have been open. It started to look like a slow decompression, which would have led to a hypoxia experience for the crew. A slow event of this sort could mean that by the time a critical hypoxia moment had arrived, the crew were too incapacitated to realize. The compression system driven from the engine was working. The valves were checked. They were operational. The cabin altitude controller display assembly was found crushed. The selector dial and underlying cabin aircraft altitude dial remained together. And the aircraft altitude setting was at 36,000 feet. They had, of course, been cleared to 39,000 feet once they'd reached 36. Tests were carried out on the Learjet Model 35 to capture CVR audio and to validate the performance of the pressurization system during an ascent similar to that of the accident. First, the testers climbed with the air conditioning system switched off from takeoff, and investigators found that during the climb, cabin altitude lagged the actual altitude of the airplane by 3,500 feet. The cabin altitude oral warning activated at 10,000 feet while the airplane was passing through a flight altitude of actually 13,500. This was a lag in warning and possibly a smoking gun. They knew now that there was something else indisputable, that the emergency pressurization system had not been activated by the crew. Then the NTSB ordered Honeywell to conduct two computer simulations to understand the cabin rate of climb. The first simulation assumed that the air conditioning system was selected off at takeoff, resulting in the loss of bleed air to the cabin. The second test, when a sudden loss of cabin air took place above 25,000 feet. They found, again, the cabin altitude lagged the actual flight altitude. Then in the second simulation, tested the loss of cabin air at 25,000, 30,000, 35,000, and 40,000 feet. It took around 44 seconds for the cabin altitude reading to correctly adjust at 25,000 feet, and about 4 minutes to reach the altitude of 35,000 or 40,000. Then a few other facts began to emerge. The FAA Orlando Flight Standards District Office had inspected Sunjet Aviation in June 99, a short while before the accident, and the results were satisfactory, they said. But a closer look at the Learjet's maintenance records began to pick up anomalies. Then in April 1995, a pre-purchase inspection performed by Learjet at its Wichita, Kansas facility picked up issues with cabin pressure throttles. The valve did not shift when power was increased and airflow was low. That was blamed on a problem with an emergency exit seal and a partially damaged main cabin door. The buyer, Sunjet, did not have this problem corrected, said Learjet. It wasn't a critical problem, they believed. This did not affect the plane's airworthiness, apparently. It was only at low airflow levels, so Sunjet did nothing. The NTSB continued scrutinizing the maintenance logs and found a glitch reported in February 1998 that the cabin occasionally would not hold pressure at low altitudes. Maintenance checked this on the ground, but could not replicate the problem, so it wasn't fixed. In May 1999, Sunjet maintenance personnel were checked out as part of the Phase A16 inspection, which included pressurization system checks, all seemed fine once more, but it wasn't. A Sunjet aviation pilot reported to safety board investigators that a month later in July 1999, 
during a flight in the very same Learjet, the pressurization system would not maintain full pressure differential and that later the cabin altitude started climbing well past 2,000 feet per minute, he said. When confronted by the NTSB, Sunjet's chief pilot denied this, saying that he hadn't noticed any differential. However, on July 23, 1999, there was a work order discrepancy sheet 5895, which noted the following. Discrepancy, pressurization check and operation of system. The discrepancy sheet highlighted that maintenance personnel had cleared the outflow valve, but no mechanics signatures or initials of inspector signatures or initials were found on work order 5895. They appear to have kicked this problem down the road. A note on this discrepancy log showed transfer to work order 5929 item 2. But before the maintenance work was performed, the accident airplane was flown to Aspen, Colorado. A number of other findings from pilots then revealed there was definitely a problem with cabin altitude readings. A Sunjet Aviation Maintenance Supervisor told the NTSB that a pilot had told him that when retarding the throttles on descent into Aspen with anti-ice on, the cabin altitude read climbing. This work order 5929 remained open until August the 1st, 1999. Then the maintenance crew logged the following update. Problem. Check pressurization system. They cleaned the outflow valve, tested pressurization, and declared the plane okay for flight. The plot is thickening. Two Learjet mechanics from Bombardier Aerospace, based at Fort Lauderdale, visited Sunjet Aviation's facilities on October 5th, 1999, to work on another plane. While there, they were approached by a mechanic, who asked them if they knew anything about Learjet Model 35 pressurization systems. They said no, they were engine specialists. Sunjet later denied any of the engineers had said any of these things. But the NTSB believed Bombardier's engineers. The smell of something fishy was growing. It gets worse. A Sunjet Aviation Maintenance Supervisor told the NTSB that in late October 1999, staff were troubleshooting to correct a staggered throttle condition at takeoff power settings. During an engine run, they replaced a spring and modulation valve and said the reason was the spring was not functioning. And cabin pressurization loss took place with reduced power setting. There it was again a problem with the power settings and pressurization. They replaced parts and thought they'd fixed this. However, there was no flight check. According to Learjet's manual, they didn't need to do one. This is only a few days before the crash. After the plane went back into service, a pilot reported that the bleed, air and pressurization system was back to normal. The only problem was he flew at 12 and 13,000 feet, not 26,000 or 39,000. Turning to the oxygen bottle, November 47 BA was flown just under 105 hours or 90 cycles between the last time the O2 system was known to have been serviced and the accident flight. Perhaps something had gone wrong with the bottle. The only problem with this theory is that it's not clear that the crew ever used the bottle in the emergency. The final twist was what the NTSB picked up in how Sunjet's maintenance logs were used. There were problems. Sunjet's flight discrepancy log was a form consisting of one white page and a duplicate yellow page. One copy was left in the plane for five days, the other was kept by maintenance personnel. When the discrepancy was corrected, the snag, the yellow copy would be filed for future reference. However, when Sunjet was asked to produce the flight discrepancy logs for November 47 BA between January 99 and the date of the accident, they couldn't. Apparently, 
All the logs were still on the plane at the time of the accident, and Sanjit couldn't find the duplicate yellow copies. This gets even worse. Supervisors told NTSB that the pilots in maintenance often used a variable logging system and didn't fill out the forms. A pilot would just complain about something, and they'd just fix it. Sometimes they'd scribble on a random piece of paper rather than fill out the flight discrepancy log. Now, of course, this is a rather shocking display of cavalier disregard for standard operating procedures, particularly as a commercial operation. Think about the poor pilots. They had no chance from what we've heard. There are so many ifs and buts here. If the pilots had received supplemental oxygen from the emergency system, they would have responded to the depressurization. If they didn't know they were being slowly overcome by hypoxia, they wouldn't have responded. So a slow partial depressurization is likely and because their cabin altitude warning lagged, they wouldn't have known they were being poisoned by lack of O2 in their system until it was too late. Needless to say, considering their somewhat loose adherence to procedures, Sunjet went bankrupt and surrendered their operating certificate to the FAA in July 2000. It wasn't just Sunjet, however. The FAA also found that Learjet Model 3536 did not have an emergency procedure requiring the flight crew to don oxygen masks immediately after the cabin altitude oral warning is activated. This could lead, obviously, to incapacitation. They issued an airworthiness directive. Learjet Model 35, 35A, 36 and 36A series airplanes proposing new emergency procedures instructing the flight crew to put on oxygen masks when the cabin altitude warning horn was activated. They also suggested an annunciator light be added to the plane to advise the flight crew if the cabin air switch was turned to off for Learjet aeroplanes without automatic emergency pressurization systems. All Bombardier jets received the same directive followed by Lockheed Model 188A and 188C series. New inspections were ordered on Learjets, particularly the cabin pressurization outflow valve and safety valve. So, what we know is this. There had been a sequence of maintenance actions between July 22 and October 23, 1999, indicating that there were several pressurization-related discrepancies during this period, and allowed unauthorized operation of flights reflected shortcomings in their procedures. In the end, the pilots did not receive supplemental oxygen in time to avoid hypoxia and incapacitation. Research shows that a period of as little as 8 seconds without oxygen following rapid depressurization at about 30,000 feet can cause a drop in oxygen saturation that significantly impairs cognitive functioning. At least in an explosive decompression, pilots have some kind of warning. Yeah, everything was against these two pilots. A slow drift into unconsciousness and shortly afterwards, they were dead. So too were the passengers, long before the plane spiraled into South Dakota. A year after Payne Stewart's death, his widow Tracy and their two children and the family of Stewart's agent Robert Fraley brought a lawsuit against Learjet, flight operator Sunjet Aviation and aircraft owner JetShares One Inc. They alleged that a cracked adapter resulted in an airflow valve detaching from the frame causing a fatal loss of cabin pressure. They also claimed that the aircraft was severely out of maintenance because of Sunjet's negligence. In April 2000, as part of a federal criminal investigation, the FBI raided Sunjet and seized their flight logbooks, effectively grounding all of its aircraft. The investigation was dropped two years later, in 2002. By then, Sunjet was bankrupt. The case against Learjet went forward in a state court in Orlando. In June 2005, Jurors found that the aircraft's manufacturer had no liability in the deaths of Stewart and Fraley 
and that no negligence was found in the design or manufacture of the aircraft. The Learjet brand, meanwhile, has stepped into the sunset. The last Learjet, which was an eight-passenger 75, was handed over to its final customer in March 2022, bringing 60 years of production to a close. Learjet produced more than 3,000 aircraft, and more than 2,000 remain flying, by the way. They are one of the most remarkable business jets of their era. Owner Bombardier says they'll focus their attention producing larger, more profitable business jets, while they have plans for Wichita, home of the Learjet. The site now will be a center of excellence, an aftermarket hub specializing in servicing the 2000 Learjets still flying. And Payne Stewart has not been forgotten. A number of US and Canadian highways have been named after him. The communities of Mina and Aberdeen created their own memorial to the crash. The farmer and pheasant hunter John Hoffman contacted Stewart's widow after the accident. They erected a memorial at the site of the crash and fenced off an acre of property surrounding that memorial. A rock unearthed by the plane was engraved with the victims' names and a Bible passage. In 2000, the PGA Tour established the Payne Stewart Award, given each year to a player who shows respect for the traditions of the game and commitment to uphold the game's heritage. At Pinehurst Golf Course No. 2, there's a bronze statue of Stewart celebrating his winning putt in the 99 US Open that overlooks the 18th green. I guess we all miss Payne Stewart. At least we know the knickerbockered charismatic player did not suffer. He probably felt a little dizzy, slightly nauseous perhaps, then fell asleep. We believe all six, Captain Kling, First Officer Bell Garrick, Stuart, Fraley, Arden and Borland, were dead long before the plane crashed. Sunjet is no more and shoddy maintenance logs are one reason why. Aviation is like evolution. You play with the underlying science of truth and you will eventually pay. Next episode, we'll deal with the Russian Yak-3 that collided with the Vickers Viking airliner over West Berlin in 1948. With the increased tensions around Russia's invasion of Ukraine and incidents involving aircraft around Nordic countries, I thought it would be a good time to remind ourselves about what can go wrong when bandit countries play fast and loose with aviation law. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps increase visibility. If you want to contact me, you can email through the sites desmondlatham.com or desmondlatham.blog. Or you can take a chance that Twitter's still there and direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, aviate, navigate, communicate safely. Goodbye.